Today we will be reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, and the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying in bed in the demon God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abigail. Have a seat. Well, good evening, Disciples Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you this evening, and um, thanks to many of you who were able to come out to the picnic today. We had a great time, um, had probably the best weather that we've had all week, and so we're very appreciative for that. Uh, and as well, um, thank you so much to Rhonda and to Sandy, uh, the Mosesons, um, Dean and Beth, others who uh, kind of made that all happen. We do appreciate your efforts and your work. Uh, it was good to be with you, good to spend the day with you, and good now to be able to worship together in this evening. So welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier, um, and it's my, my true privilege to be able to open the word with you and for you this evening. And so turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 7. Um, we are going to flip around to just a couple different passages this evening, so if you have your Bible, that'll be helpful for you as we go. If you've been with us as we've begun working through Mark chapter 7, and really now we're coming to the close of that chapter, approaching this halfway mark um, of the book of Mark, what you've noticed about those first 23 verses, and we talked about this last week, is that Jesus is really operating as a prophet. He's calling out the excesses, the, the legalistic tendencies, the pursuits of the law, and really the fleshly tendency or pursuit of righteousness that was unattainable on the part of the Pharisees. And he's calling out in those opening verses the Pharisees for trying to do in their own flesh what ultimately only God could do in them. And in this text that we find today, we find a, a subtle but important shift the life and the mannerism of Jesus, because in this passage, he shifts from treating the Pharisees in this kind of prophetic sense to operating really as a missionary, addressing those who had had no allegiance at all to the God of Israel, going outside of the bounds of Israel for the first and only time in his earthly ministry, and approaching, or rather interacting with this woman who had come to seek his help. I don't know if we think about this very often. When we begin to think about who the greatest missionaries are in the history of the world, if you were to begin to think about that to the extent that you have an understanding of Christian history or biblical understanding, there's a lot of names that you could begin to put in as great missionaries. If you're talking in a more modern sense, within the last couple of hundred years, you could think about names like Adoniram Judson or Hudson Taylor, these men who had in, who had long-lasting impact in the way that we think about international missions. If you go back to earlier centuries, you eventually find your way back to Paul, probably the greatest uh, of the missionaries that are recorded for us in the sense that he covered such a massive portion uh, of the world at that time and was so impactful in his ministry. But do you understand that in a very real sense, the initiator of missions is Christ? 
that Jesus leaves the glories and the comforts of heaven, the perfect communion that he had with the Father and the Spirit, that he leaves all of that to seek and to save that which was lost. And he began that missionary effort by pursuing God's chosen people, by going after the Jews, ethnic Israel, these people whom God had chosen to be his own set-apart people for his own glory and for his own purposes. This is where Jesus' ministry was focused. And what we see as we follow the ministry of Jesus, and we've certainly played this out, uh, seen this play out through the book of Mark, is that in Jesus Christ you see the kingdom of God come. You see it brought into fruition and being, and being brought rather into fruition. And through texts like this, we see how God's plan ultimately was to move forward, the moving forward of his kingdom through these missionary efforts. That what began in ministry to the Jews was destined to spread far beyond Israel's borders. See, one of the many unique characteristics and features of Christianity is how its influence has spread all over the globe over time. That God uses vastly different people groups all over the world to bring about his kingdom. What began here in the ministry of Jesus Christ is this focus first on Israel as they came to know Jesus and as he as he proclaimed the gospel of repentance and reconciliation to them. And upon his death and resurrection and ascension, you see the gospel begin to spread all throughout the Middle East and it begins to touch into northern Africa where we find Christians like St. Augustine beginning to work his ministry in the third century. You see the gospel begin to move further on into the Western European nations where it really begins to take hold and take root and spread. And you find what is modern day uh, Western Europe become a hub Christianity, ultimately moving into the United Kingdom and to the Netherlands, and from there you can begin to follow that trace as Christians seeking ultimately religious liberty and the freedom to worship as they desired and as they were commanded. You begin them to seek, to seek solace in the new world, and you see the beginning of the birth of the United States of America. And as we've watched over the last several hundred years, what you've seen now is the gospel begin to spread even further into portions of the world that historically had very little, if any, Christian influence. You find places like modern-day Latin America exploding with the proclamation of the gospel. You find China, despite all of the persecution that Christians there are experiencing and having to meet in underground churches and house churches, you find Christianity exploding in modern-day China. You find places like Africa, where all throughout that continent there were large groups of people that had never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, now becoming the hub of a modern reformation in that country. And we see that in this text as well, that Jesus Jesus certainly has a love for his own ethnic people group, but he has a heart for the lost Gentiles as well. And so let's look at this text beginning in verse 24. Here's what it says. And from there, this is the conversation that he had had with the Pharisees and the scribes. From there, excuse me, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. 
Now, we're not told exactly why it was that Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was there. I mean, some people, if you begin to read different commentators on this text, some of them speculate that perhaps he was running because Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, was so terrified that Jesus was, in fact, John the Baptist resurrected that he now had plans to murder Jesus. Some speculate that. Others speculate that Jesus was surprised that the gospel was not received more wholeheartedly throughout the region of Galilee. And so in an attempt to see the gospel move forward, he was now creeping up into this Gentile region. I don't think we find much evidence for either of those two positions, scripturally or outside of scripture, but personally, what I think we have here is Jesus once again needing to rest. And you find a theme throughout these last couple of chapters that whenever it is that Jesus needs rest and needs to get away, he seemingly is unable to find it because people track him down and begin to bring their needs to him. He needs to be with his disciples. He needs to be alone with his father. He needs to have rest. But whatever it was that motivated Jesus to leave Israel, he finds himself now being led to these cities of Tyre and Sidon. This is just northwest of Galilee. What's interesting about this region is that it's a Gentile region with a long history of antagonism towards Israel. The Jews knew well who the residents of Tyre and Sidon were, and they had very, very little regard for them. I mean, this was the place that historically had been the home of the evil queen Jezebel, who throughout the course of her rule in Israel had tried to turn Israel from its worship of the one true God to worship of Baal. This is a hub for pagan worship. In fact, The historian Josephus goes so far as to say that the inhabitants of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemies. These people had a reputation for not only not loving God and not worshiping God, but being absolute pagans in the way that they lived their lives. There was nothing about the one true God or the gospel of that God that they had any sort of affection or concern for. In fact, Joseph went so, Josephus rather went so far as to say that Tyre represented the most extreme expression of paganism. In other words, if you want to know what it looks like to live a life absolutely devoid of God, worshiping other beings and other entities and demonic influences, all you had to do was go to Tyre. And so it's interesting that in God's provision, this story immediately follows Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees viewed themselves as intellectually and socially and ethnically superior And they could not have imagined an audience more ill-suited and more, and rather less deserving of the redeeming message of God than the residents of Tyre and Sidon. So where our previous story concerned Jewish men obsessed with the law, this story concerns a non-Jewish woman without the law. And while the Pharisees presumed that there was no salvation apart from the law, in this passage, Jesus shows in no uncertain terms that there is no salvation apart from him. Look at verse 25. But immediately, after he's just gotten to this house, just kicked up his feet, and just began to rest and talk with his disciples, immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, 
and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Of all the people who could have approached Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, this particular individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. I mean, just imagine the culture shock that would have happened if you were following Jesus throughout the course of the stories that Mark has recorded for us. As you went from interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees, these men who had, who had profoundly respectable lives, who any Jew alive at this time would have looked at with high regard and high respect. They were clean according to the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws and the cleanliness laws. They had memorized Scripture. They, they taught in the synagogue. These were men who undoubtedly, at least externally, loved God with all their hearts. And what we find is the resume of a woman that is exactly the opposite of the Pharisees. First, she's a woman. In a culture that had very little regard and very little respect for women, particularly Gentile women, that's exactly what she was. Second, it defines her as a Greek Gentile. And when it says Greek there, it's not talking about her ethnic heritage. It's actually most likely talking about her language, the language that she spoke. So Jesus would have had this conversation with this woman in Greek, but it specifies that she was a Gentile. And when it uses that word Gentile, it is emphasizing her pagan background, that this woman absolutely was not a follower or a worshiper of the one true God. And as if all of that is not enough, she comes from this infamous region called Syrophoenicia, and she has a daughter that is demon-possessed. And from growing up in this province, so close to the chosen people of God, so close to ethnic Israel, this woman undoubtedly would have known about the Jewish customs. She would have known that someone with her reputation and with her resume had none of the necessary credentials to approach someone like Jesus. In fact, Matthew's account of the same passage, which we're going to look at in a moment, identifies her as a Canaanite woman meaning that not only was she a Gentile, and not only was she a Syrophoenician, and not only did she have a daughter who was demon-possessed, but on top of that, she was a direct descendant of the Canaanites, the people that God himself had told the Israelites to destroy for their warring against the lordship of God. But despite all of that, as soon as this woman hears of Jesus she ignores her desire, his desire rather for privacy, and she comes to him. She ignores the social mores of her day of a woman approaching a man. She ignores the religious expectation that she, as an unclean Gentile, was not to approach a Jewish rabbi, and she throws herself at his feet in a sign of both respect and grief. And we're told that she begged. In fact, the word that's translated begged in our, in our text literally means she kept on begging. And if you read the Matthaean account, you can find all of the accounts of how she was approaching Jesus in this moment. This woman is a parent, and her child is in danger, and nothing and no one is going to stand in the way of her seeking help from the one place she knows she can find it. 
So let's look at Matthew's account. It's in Matthew chapter 15. I'll read this aloud for you. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 23 gives us the parallel account. And I just want to read that for you. This isn't something we've done a lot throughout the book of Mark, but I want to read this for you. Here's what it says. That when Jesus heard the request of the woman, he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. And Jesus answered, speaking to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we're seeing something in these texts that is frankly unusual for us to think about. We're seeing Jesus use language and do things that we've not seen him do before. But I want you to understand what's happening in these two texts. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. He's writing to those who had grown up in the synagogue, who had heard the promises of God. They'd heard the prophecies of God about the coming Messiah. They knew the Old Testament. They were familiar with the expectations of a Jew. And so Matthew, of course, is going to emphasize things a little bit differently than Mark does. Mark, remember, is writing to a primarily Gentile audience, specifically a Roman audience. And you can see the differences in approach that they take in these particular texts. But I want you to notice what happens here. This woman comes to him, breaking all of these mores and all of these traditions and all of these expectations, and she says, Jesus, I need your help. I am begging you to intercede in my situation. My daughter has an unclean spirit. You're the only one who can assist. And it says in a rather chilling way in Matthew 15, 23, but he did not answer her a word. And as if that's not enough, the disciples, we're told, begin to beg him to dismiss this woman. They didn't just suggest it. They didn't just talk about it. They are pleading with Jesus to send this woman away. And what you see in this moment is the heart of the disciples You see the infiltration in their mindset and their worldview and their perspective because they had towards this woman the exact same attitude that the Pharisees had toward them. They're thinking exactly like the Pharisees. They're going, okay, so Jesus just declared that all food is now clean and that what goes in your mouth is not what defiles you, but rather what comes out of your heart. But certainly the line has to be drawn somewhere. And of course, the line has to be drawn, Jesus, where the pagan woman who's approaching you, don't let her get near you. In other words, they had defined their own level of legalism outside of what Scripture had laid out. They were willing to go with Jesus so long as he said that food was clean and was no longer an issue, but people are now clean. You're telling me we can come in contact with Gentiles and remain clean? And they're begging him to send her away. But despite everything about who she was and all of the cultural reasons that Jesus would have had to dismiss her, he wouldn't. And you see Jesus' response. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth noting that this is the only time recorded for us in Jesus' earthly ministry where he crosses outside of the borders of Israel. 
And I don't know if you've ever really thought about this before. I'll be honest with you. It was something that certainly had never struck me quite so significantly as it did this week. But did you ever realize that? That nearly the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry was spent in Israel. And so, though he certainly came in contact with Gentiles and ministered to Gentiles and cared for Gentiles, this is the only time recorded for us where he actually left Israel. And Jesus declares for us in no uncertain terms in this text that his earthly ministry was primarily to the Jews. It was primarily to ethnic Israel. And actually, if you begin to read through the New Testament, what you find is that it wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection, just before his ascension, that the disciples are charged with evangelizing the world. Where in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he tells the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel and teach the people and baptize the nations that God himself might be glorified. Do you understand that Jesus came first to the Jews? as God's chosen people. And then notice the response of the woman to the statement of Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She illustrates in this moment the truth, the heart of Jesus' teaching in the previous passage that if foods are not unclean, if they're not capable of defiling you, then neither our people. And Jesus hears her heartfelt request, and his response, once again, is striking. And he said to her, verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's, excuse me, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but as you hear that, does that strike you as strange? You kind of have to reread it and go, Jesus said that? What is it exactly that he's actually saying here? And what's happening in this pattern is important for us to understand because Jesus is following the, the, the same pattern here that we often see from him. People come to him with problems. People come to him with questions. The Pharisees come trying to trip him up. The disciples come trying to understand, and Jesus responds to them with a parable. And he does the very same thing in this text. He says this. He says, let the children be fed first. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to communicate to you that my work with the Jews is not finished. There is more ministering to be done. There's more proclamation to be done. There is more gospel to be given. There is more work ultimately finding its way onto the cross that is to be done on their behalf. That the Jews had a unique role in the plan of God, and they were his first responsibility through the course of his earthly ministry. So he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And by taking the children's bread, what he means is this, the blessing of Jesus' ministry to the Jews. It's not right that I just take that and throw it to the dogs. Now, what does he mean by that last phrase? Because that's troublesome for us. And admit it, it's troublesome. It bothers us to hear it. We're not used to this sort of language. It sounds harsh, even to our modern Western ears. Even though in Western culture we think of dogs as man's best friend and we have all kinds of positive associations with dogs, we still have an understanding that when one person calls another person a dog, it is generally not meant in the kindest sense. Dogs in this culture in particular were associated with uncleanness. They ate garbage. They ate dead animals and dead bodies. So to call someone a dog was a term of judgment 
for people that were considered worthless and indispensable, or rather dispensable. So the real question then becomes, why does Jesus use this term? And it's important for us to understand so that we don't have our our view of Jesus skewed. Because once again, the original language becomes important here. Because Jesus here uses a, a very unique word. It's not used often in Scripture at all. In fact, it's an alternate word for dog. It would, it would most closely be related to our word, little dog or puppy. He's not talking about some street animal that's running around eating trash and eating dead animals. He's talking here about a household pet. So ultimately, what's happening? Here's, here's my explanation. You've got to remember the context for all of this. Jesus is in a house. He's come into this region. He's made his way into a house. The woman has come to visit him in this very same place. And so it very well could be that as Jesus is sitting there, he sees this scene play out in front of him. The woman has come. She's begging for help. She's looking for assistance. And Jesus, doing what he often did in situations like this, looks around and tries to find some way to illustrate what it is he's about to say. And it's as if he's saying, do you see those kids who are over there eating at the table? And do you see those dogs that are running around on the floor looking for scraps? For me to, for me to make my ministry about you as a Gentile would be to take bread from the children and give it to that household pet. It would be the wrong order. I'm coming to the Israelites first and the Gentiles second. And of course, that's consistent with other scriptures. We find it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now understand this, Jesus undoubtedly had a love for his ethnic people. We find him and see him ministering to Jews consistently throughout his ministry. We read of Jesus going to the Mount of Olives just before his crucifixion and weeping, weeping over the hard-heartedness of his own people. And ultimately, we find him entrusting the care of the church in Jerusalem to Peter and James. But we also find God's love for his covenant people expressed in an ongoing way in Romans chapter 11. And you can read that on your own, but essentially what it says is that God was going to continue to pursue his people, that he was going to bring them ultimately to salvation. But understand this, Jesus' interaction with his people was not a preferential or exclusive love based on ethnic heritage. So we find Jesus saying in Mark chapter 3, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We find in the moments immediately after the resurrection, the great commission, go into all the world, to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. I can tell you as a Gentile, I am so thankful that God's love extended to me as well. Aren't you? And look at the response of this woman to this hard saying. Because even after hearing it, she shows her utter confidence in Christ. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And certainly, even the Pharisees would have been shocked to hear her quick-witted response. 
Because remember here that Jesus is speaking in a parable. The parables were intended purposefully to throw a fog over the truth. They were intended to be given in such a way that only through the Holy Spirit's enlightenment could someone understand. Jesus, throughout the course of this book, has sought desperately to teach his own disciples, but they struggle to understand. Do you remember what he said to them in the passage we studied last week? He said, are you so dull? Are you willfully ignorant? They were so lacking in understanding, but here, this pagan woman from an objectionable region as a Gentile is so moved by the Holy Spirit that not only does she understand the words that Jesus is giving, but she responds to him from within the confines of the parable. And notice her response. She acknowledges that that the food should be first given to the Israelites. She's saying, yes, I know I haven't been worshiping God. I know that the promises are ultimately not for me, but as a dog in the house, I'd like my scraps. And in her humility, she accepts that Jesus' first responsibility was to the Jews, and she trusted that the overflow of God's love would be enough to meet her needs. She's saying to Jesus, I know I don't deserve your intervention, but I'm trusting in your goodness. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Jesus' response is translated differently in different texts, but one of the ways that it could accurately or at least respectfully be translated is this, what an answer. I mean, you can, almost, you can almost picture a smile creeping onto Jesus' face as he hears her response. He is astounded at her insight, her humility, and her faith. And when we say faith, what do we mean by that? Because that's a troublesome word for a lot of people. It certainly has been at different points in my life. What do we mean when we say faith in this context? Because the tendency can be for people to look at the idea of faith and to view it through one particular lens, one particular religious lens in particular, where they've they've seen people throughout the course of their lives who seem to be people of faith, meaning that they had a tendency towards belief. They had a tendency towards believing or hoping in the supernatural. They had a tendency or a belief in the church. And so they had some example of faith in all kinds of people. And you know them and I know them are just the kind of people where they go, I wish I had your kind of faith, but I just don't have it. As if faith is something you can muster. As if it's something you can build up through your own strength by your own power. As if faith is just one more element of your personality trait. I'm a person of faith and I'm not a person of faith. I just wasn't, I wasn't wired like that. I'm not born like that. Do you understand that people who are intellectual and people who are completely emotional on all, on all points on that spectrum can be people of faith? 
How is that possible? Because when we talk about faith in this context, what we're saying is that she recognized that she brought nothing to the table. That she had no claim, that she had no right, that she had no expectation that she should be given what she was asking for. But the faith was in the fact that she was utterly dependent on Christ. And without even being there in person, Jesus frees her daughter from the demon. And this is yet one more example of Jesus' authority. And we've been seeing Jesus demonstrate his authority in new and different and more powerful ways all throughout the book of Mark. If you remember back a couple of chapters, what he did in the person with the demoniac of the Gerasenes, he now does at a distance When he was dealing with the demoniac and the Gerasenes, he approached the man and he had a conversation with him and he freed the man of the demonic possession. And now Jesus, simply through his words, frees this girl that isn't even on the scene. That's power. But of course, the real question that picks at us is this. How ultimately was it that this woman received her request? And I think here's the answer. First, she recognized her position. She recognized, to use the words of Jesus, that she was a dog, just as we likewise are dogs. It's the very same thing that we have to recognize about ourselves, and that is so hard for us to do. Because to use this language to recognize yourself as a dog, what it literally means is this. It means that you understand that you have no claim and no right and no expectation that nothing is owed you, that nothing about who you are or, who, or where you were born or whom you were born to or anything about the way that you are necessitates any sort of good thing from God. Do you, res- do you understand, by the way, what this woman's response could have been? Her response to the words of Jesus could have been offense at the use of this epithet. She could have said, what are you calling me? Did you just call me a house pet? How dare you? And she could have walked away. Likewise, she could have been so crushed by the words of Jesus, by the truth of what he had said about her, that she just walked away in shame and dishonor. Do you understand that those are the very same temptations that you and I face? That when the Bible calls us sinners, when it, when it communicates the idea that we are totally depraved, not meaning that we are as bad as we theoretically could be, but meaning that everything that we do is marked, touched, shaded, stained with sin. When it refers to all of our righteousnesses as filthy rags, when it says that we were at war and enmity with God, do you understand that those words are inherently offensive despite their truth? And the tendency of our heart can be to rise up in pride and in arrogance and say, how dare you call me that? How dare you think that I need some God to intervene on my behalf? Do you know who I am? And though we wouldn't have the gall to say that, perhaps, it's the attitude of our heart. 
that we approach God as if he owes us something, expectant because of our accomplishments, our demeanor, or our history, or that we think so little of ourselves that we believe God could not possibly love someone like us. Where we understand very well the depraved nature of our souls, but we see no hope in Christ. And both of those perspectives are rejections of God's mercy and grace. But notice what this woman does instead. She instead grabs hold of the goodness and the grace of Jesus, and she persists. So first, we recognize our position, and then second, in her her humility, she recognized the hope that Jesus alone offered. First, she recognized her position, and second, she recognized the hope that Jesus alone offered. This is, what, this is what's communicated to us in John chapter 6, verse 37, when Jesus says these words, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. I will never drive away. I will never reject. I'll never push them back. And the idea is this, that only through the Spirit's granting can you even understand your desperation that outside of the Holy Spirit illuminating the darkness of your heart and revealing what's in the cracks and the crevices of your soul, you'll never even understand how depraved you are. That the only reason we think we are good is because we don't even understand who we are. That when the Holy Spirit reveals those things to us, when he leads us to that point of desperation, that desperation then drives us to the feet of Jesus Christ. And understand this, Jesus never rejects the desperate. Jesus never rejects the desperate. And what began as a crumb for this Gentile woman seeing her daughter delivered from a demon was destined to become a meal. Because what Jesus began in interactions like this one, he completed on the cross. I'm going to read a familiar text to you. It's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, and I want you as best you can to think about that those verses through the eyes and the perspective and the understanding of this woman and ultimately your own heart because here's what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, here's the idea that outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the intervening grace of God, outside of his destined love for you in his own heart, by his own will, to his own glory, you had no promise and no standing that all of the promises he had made with Israel and all of the promises he had made with his own people did not apply to you. You had no hope bound and destined for hell. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, all of the hostility that had been created between Jews and Gentiles by the Jews' observance of the perfect and holy and righteous law of God, and all of the hostility from the Gentiles and having no claim in those promises and having no place in the household of God that has in this moment on the cross been abolished that the wall of hostility between the two has been torn down and where there were once two different peoples, they have been made one in Jesus Christ. And he's done this that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's us as Gentiles. And to those who were near, those are the Jews, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And listen to these words, and members of the household of God. Now think about those words in light of who this woman was. Because what Jesus just described in Ephesians chapter 2, is the, or rather what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, is the exact same thing that he describes in Romans chapter 8. It is the process of adoption by which we are brought from the outside into the family. That we are not seeking a reconciliation of our own construction, but that reconciliation has already been provided. It has already been granted. We've already been brought in. Now think about that through the lens of this woman who understood her role as a dog in the house and now through Jesus Christ has been made a child. That the promises and the salvation and the guarantees and the confidence that once just applied to one particular ethnic group now apply to all those who know Jesus Christ. become sons and daughters as people who are far off and at war and at enmity with God to be made into sons and daughters. That is the work that was done on your behalf and on the behalf of this woman at the cross. And that is in part what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table that we as Gentiles, as sinners, as those who bring, who bring nothing to Jesus other than the sin that made his death necessary, that we come no longer as dogs looking for scraps, but we come as children looking forward to a meal. That as we partake of the bread and the wine, we are celebrating in a very real and true sense what Jesus accomplished and has recorded for us in Ephesians chapter two. That there is no more dividing wall of hostility. That where there was once two peoples, there is now just one. Those who share the blood, not of common ancestry or ethnicity, but those who share the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And so as we approach the wine or the juice, as we take the bread together, we are remembering that it is in Jesus Christ giving his body and shedding his blood that we not only receive salvation personally, but are also united one with another. And so that's what we're going to remember in this time. So what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to take a few minutes of silence, which is our normal practice before we come to communion. And in that time, I'm just going to encourage you to spend time with the Father, to rest in his presence, to commune with him, perhaps to consider the things that we've talked about. And then I'm going to invite you to come forward to receive the communion. Um, on the trays behind me, there is wine and juice, and there's also the prepackaged communion as well, if you'd like to partake in that, as well as a plate for bread. And so you can come up and receive whichever one you choose, and then you can return to your seats. And then if you'll please wait, and we'll take that together. Um, and I would just extend as well an invitation. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me just invite you to please not partake. Um, when we come to this table, what we're really recognizing is what we've talked about tonight, that you've been redeemed, that you've been reconciled, that your heart has been transformed, that you've experienced what it is to know Jesus Christ and to be washed free of your sin through his blood. And so if you haven't experienced that, if you haven't um, gone through that, we'd, we'd love to talk to you more about it. We'd invite you to come have a conversation with us after the service and talk more about it. But I just ask that you refrain from taking that. But if you know Jesus... When our time of silence is done, you can come forward and receive those elements and then return to your seats and we'll take those things together. So let's go to a time of silence.